Hello, constant listener. While we are now very much past the usual time of year for observing horrific encounters of the unexplainable, I personally love hearing scary stories all year round. In that, I hope you'll continue to join me as Coppershock grows. I love learning about odd or interesting facts of history, especially if it has to do with crime. I couldn't tell you why my fascination for it runs so deeply. So when a friend who knew me very well asked me to Google a name of a photographer, I was pleasantly surprised by what I found. Beautifully brutal and violent images of murders in a Victorian setting. The way these photos were angled felt less clinical and more about evoking an emotion of sympathy for the dead. The juxtaposition of a cold body on the floor of a warm and lush-looking Victorian home I began to research more about this photographer. You'll hear people say his name as Bertillion, but the French pronunciation of a double L has a Y sound. I do have a link to a YouTube video of someone saying his name spoken in French. The photographer in question is Alphonse Bertillon. Alphonse started as a copyist in the 1860s, which is a fancy term for a human Xerox machine. Not to belittle his position, for at the time it was an important job for record-keeping. But, as you imagine, that's not what he's remembered for. As a copyist at his local police headquarters, he saw the farce of rounding up suspects for crimes. And they were often the same suspect. Again. And they were brought in again and again. Even after that person had been cleared. While I do believe authorities of that era were doing their best, I also kinda now believe the investigators in charge of finding Jack the Ripper had a heinous time catching him. Not because Jack the Ripper was a genius, but because these guys were hellishly unorganized. The fact is, police had no systematic way of narrowing down suspects. That seems dumb or an oversimplification, right? Truth is, it was common to rearrest someone without having remembered if you'd already arrested them and let them go. The most likely record an authority would write down was a man's name. Introductions are not exactly the first piece of information that you give when you're being mugged. And criminals would give fake names anyway. Pictures were not common for lower class criminals. What pictures police would obtain were often very poor in quality. Alphonse saw this chaos all the time, and he decided to do something about it because frankly, he had a very different way of looking at things. Calling Alphonse an odd duck was kind of putting it mildly. On record, an acquaintance once described Alphonse as not in possession of his full faculties. And that it was his moonstruck eyes, his sepulchral voice, the saturnine magnetism that made him feel like, like he was in the presence of a necromancer. Alphonse didn't just look at the data, he wanted to construct consistent puzzle pieces to help complete investigations. He sought out details no other investigator really considered. He would measure the circumference of a head, the length of a finger, and keep a meticulous record of these bodily measurements. Turns out, it's easier to identify a guy by hair color and height than it was by a fake name. This is still known today as the Bertillon system, or Bertillon, and the last piece of this system that every country knows and is universally practiced still today after 150 years. 
That is the classic mugshot. He was testing it out, and there's a self-portrait of himself via mugshot that you can find online. But for all the amazing groundbreaking crime observation things Alphonse had pioneered up through that point, while influential, over time technology grew. Technology for photography, specifically. Alphonse was the first to entertain the idea of photography in a crime scene. He believed that by showing the brutality of the murders, it would bring about a public outcry for justice, and allow for more documentation of the scene as it existed before it deteriorated over time. His photography is graphic, I'll warn you. It is purposefully meant to show the violent aftermath of a murder. In the description of this podcast, I do have a link to a high digital scan of a Parisian crime scene book from 1902 using the system. This imagery had huge success, and this system expanded into lessons for law enforcement all over Europe. Alphonse continued his work to pioneer other crime fields, fields like ballistics, footprints, the degree of forced breaking and entering, the stroke of how someone's penmanship compared to a criminal letter, the importance of remembering the shape of a nose, or a footprint in dirt with a worn shoe sole. Elementary, my dear Watson. I mean, if all of this is starting to sound like Sherlock Holmes, it should. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle based much of his forensic observations on cases Alphonse touched in the 1870s. Sherlock Holmes wouldn't exist on paper until 1892. I'm Tasha Wheelhouse, and this is Copper Shock. This was a story of mine that didn't strike me as frightening until long after. When I was 23, my personality was similar to what it is now. Introverted. <laughs> I lived with two very extroverted roommates who loved to go out on the weekends and meet new people. Natalie had come up to my bedroom door, knocked once, and let herself in. So, what are your plans for tonight? She smiled. She knew full well I wasn't planning on going anywhere. I'm just here. I placed my bookmark in my copy of The Illustrated Man. I had been reading it again for the third time. Natalie proceeded to open my closet door and picked out a shirt from a hanger. She turned around and danced it over her chest, then tossed it onto my bed in front of my feet. Kenyon invited Maya and I and told us to bring as many girls as we can to a house party tonight. You're gonna look killer in that. She gestured to the black and white herringbone button down that was now lying limply on my covers. I don't know if I'm up for it. Come on, come have fun. I gave a small smile, then nodded my head a little. Well, alright, I'll get ready, but I need about a half hour for hair and makeup, okay? Just, how about you guys go ahead, and I'll catch up in my own car. Psh, why? It's only 8.45 and we're not gonna leave till 9.30 anyway. And with that, Natalie let herself out of my room, leaving my door open. I've learned to live with negotiating my unspoken happiness of no social contact to my roommate's social obfuscation that everything needs to be shared in an open space. I will admit, though, I remember thinking that particular night that I was in want of human contact. Just humans not named Natalie or Maya. For while they meant well, it was always tinted with a selfish meaning of wellness. 
They invited me not exactly wanting my company, but because a guy Maya was aiming for had contracted her to bring another set of boobies to the party. I got dressed, did my hair and makeup, and as vain as it sounds, I looked into the mirror and felt kind of good about how I looked. I felt a surge of confidence swell up in me. I smiled. My long black hair had loose beach curls that framed my face in a way that I liked. And for once, my eyeliner wings were even. I came down the stairs, Natalie and Maya both waiting on the couch in the living room. Let's go, Maya said, pushing herself up off the couch. Seriously, I'll just follow in my own car. Absolutely not. Part of the deal is that we tell each other about what went down at the party on our drive home. Natalie hooked a playful arm around my neck, pushing toward the garage door. I sat in the back while the two of them sat up front. As we drove, Natalie and Maya would argue about what music to play, but once they hit a song they could agree on, they'd holler at one another and start to scream the lyrics out loud. I joined in for a few songs from the back seat. I knew the general layout of Provo, Utah. After a few years of either attending BYU or UVU, the college kids my age all have a general idea of what apartment complex existed where. Natalie, where did Kenyon say this was at again? He didn't. I just have an address. She held up her phone to gesture the information was on there. I nodded and sat back into my seat. A few minutes later, we were parked on the street. I remember walking into the house party and smelling a wave of sweaty humidity. It may have been only 10.02 p.m., but the house was full of people moving together in a massive throng to the beat. Lights were off, save for some strobes, and the music wasn't just blasting, it was pulsing from massive speakers. Natalie and Maya both started to twitch and wave their arms above their head as they disappeared into the small, intimate crowd of dancers. Yes, once they saw the dance in the living room, they immediately left me. I sighed. It was typical. I diverted over into a massive kitchen with a marble kitchenette island about seven feet long. This house was practically a mini-mansion. There were red Solo cups everywhere, but I didn't feel like getting a drink. I'm not much of a drinker anyway, the taste is too bitter, and I don't like the feeling of not being in my full control. I know I'm a stick in the mud. You're not the first person to tell me. There were groups of people standing around the kitchen with some cup in hand and others with just their arms crossed. There was a door behind them that led out onto a patio that descended to a large yard. I walked down the patio stairs toward the small fire pit. There was a set of sad-looking and mismatched lawn chairs around it. I found a chair and sat down looking into the lit fire. I love staring at how the flames lick at the dark air and smoke above it. Three strangers started to descend the stairs. One was a Polynesian, the second wore a flat-brimmed cap, and the third, a handsome but at the same time plain-looking guy in a black jacket. May we? Flatbrim said as he sat down before waiting for my invitation. Yeah, of course. The three of them continued to wrap up a prior conversation they were having before approaching the fire. But when they did reach a lull in their conversation, the Polynesian turned to me with a large smile. So, what's your name? Do you know Anna or Bryce? I raised an eyebrow. I barely knew Kenyon. Everyone at this party seemed to be a friend of a friend of a friend. I don't, sorry. Do you know Kenyon? Nope. I gave a small nod. 
there is going to be a some zero of people at this party I would remotely even be associated to. So I did the next best trick an introvert knows how to do. I asked the three gentlemen their name, what they're studying, and anything about themselves. If an introvert like me can keep someone else talking, it means I need to talk less. And I found that people, they like to talk about themselves. I'm Kai. The Polynesian pointed to himself and gave a broad smile. That's Hooper. He pointed to the guy wearing a black coat. And that's Todd. He pointed to the flat brimmer. Good to meet all of you. I'm Kate. So, what do you like to do? As I've lived in Utah long enough, I know the popular social answers should be one of the following four. Hiking, longboarding, rock climbing, boating. If you live in Utah and don't love the great outdoors, there's a slight chance of being seen as a social pariah. But since I don't know any of these guys and I didn't think I'd ever see them again, I gave him an honest answer. I like to read horror fiction, sometimes sci-fi, but more horror. Seems like the perfect thing for a night next to a fire pit, said Hooper. Got any stories to tell? Kai lit up and leaned forward in his chair. I know a couple, but I'm pretty sure they're the ones that everybody's heard. What about you guys? Got any good stories? Todd playfully raised his hand and looked to Kai and Hooper. Guys, I have one, but we can't do it here. I raised my eyebrow. Hold on, I've got an idea. Todd hopped up from his chair and bounded back up the patio steps into the house again. I looked at Kai and Hooper with some confusion. So, does Todd do that often? Just run off? Yeah, Todd's a weird dude. Hooper gave a cheeky smile to Kai and shrugged. After that, I don't remember what we talked about for the next 15 minutes. But it was right after that I remember Todd did come back. This time he was wearing his light jacket, like he was getting ready to leave. Okay guys, I got it arranged and we've got three cars organized to go, including my car. Todd, what are you talking about? Hooper asked. I'm talking about the ultimate freaky place of Provo, Utah. The abandoned prison, have you ever been inside? I felt a flip happen in my stomach. The excitement of seeing a derelict prison sounded amazing. But also dangerous. There's no way going to an abandoned prison in the dead of night was ever going to be a good idea. I had no idea Provo had an abandoned prison, I said. So? Come on guys, let's go! I better not, but I really do appreciate the invite. I looked past Todd's shoulder and saw Natalie and Maya walking down the patio stairway. Kate! Thanks, Todd, I bitterly thought to myself. Out of the tens of college kids in that house partying, he sweet-talked my roommates into this idea. This was 2011, so Uber or Lyft hadn't come into vogue just yet for Utah. I'd honestly be pretty stranded at this house party if I told them to leave for the prison without me. I stood up and offered my hand to Hooper. Well, let's ride, I said optimistically. Hooper grabbed my arm to pull himself up. Ah, uh, in truth... I felt a lead weight in my stomach. Getting to the prison was a bit of a drive, and it was surprisingly nestled into a very tidy and nice neighborhood. 
It rested up against the rising mountain face of Mount Timpanogos. It's strange, but I remember thinking this prison has a decent view of the valley. We parked three streets up from the prison itself. We were to walk down. In the light of the street lamps, I saw Todd with a small group of others whom I also didn't know. In total, there were about twelve of us together walking down the main street, walking toward Buckley Lane. We walked past a large and expensive-looking elementary school. Hey guys, I heard Todd give a sharp whisper back to the group of us. Come look at this for a second. He veered from the main street into the parking lot of the elementary school. The chain-link fence at the edge of the asphalt lot had a steep, 40-foot drop down into the concrete of the prison exterior. The elementary school parking lot was built higher up on the hill, overlooking the roof of the prison. The compound was large. While it was the middle of the night, my eyes could work out just enough detail to understand how big of a building this was. I looked over again and saw my group was walking away back down. I quietly caught up, then I heard Todd say, Okay, no talking after this point. Folks in the neighborhood watch for people breaking in and call the cops all the time, so everyone be as invisible as possible. We walked almost single file in utter silence. There was a large pine tree that grew on the exterior of the chain link fence round the front of the prison. And in a very specific spot, I would have not seen it if it weren't for Todd's direct instruction, there was a tidy break in the chain-link fence that almost looked like the fence was still laced together just fine. Hooper came back up behind me and gave a playful poke in my side. I nearly screamed from surprise, but instead took in a sharp gasp of air. My adrenaline shot up. As I came back down from it, I gave Hooper a glaring stare. He smiled and walked past me through the front door. The front lobby was on the smallish side to me. There was a front desk with large gaps where the windows should have been. Every window had been completely smashed in. Glass was everywhere on the floor. I was fairly glad I went with my heel-height boots and not my strappy sandals. We rounded the first opened door that led to where the desk chair should have been. Right beyond the desk was a door with a formally painted word, booking. I felt a surge come through me as I read the spray-painted words below it. They read, Here, you become a number. I couldn't shake the feeling that it felt like a warning. I was careful where I stepped. I could feel the way the glass would crunch under my soul, and I kept wondering if I stepped on it at the wrong angle, could it just come up through my shoe and cut me open? However, the glass issue became less and less the further we got into the concrete belly of the beast. There was a long hallway with a series of doors. Some still remained totally locked, but others were burst wide open. Some still had papers strewn about. There were so many swastika symbols drawn on the walls everywhere. The drop ceiling boards were busted out in many places, exposing the roof and old electrical wiring above it. One of the office spaces we passed had a burnt brown carpeting with wooden beveled baseboards. A Sanyo 1980s survey television had its screen smashed out and thrown out the window to the concrete just outside. It smelled awful in here. I'm positive there had to be some sort of mold. 
The way some of the discoloration dripped down the walls, it wasn't settling. I think the idea was for Todd to get to a certain point he liked, and then he wanted to tell us some ghostly story. As our group walked, we passed a familiar-looking room I'd seen on TV and in the movies. I don't know the actual term, but I nicknamed it the Conversation Room. This had rows of stools bolted into the floor and a plexiglass divider between where visitors and convicts could talk to one another. Natalie and Maya were fairly freaked out. The only reason I knew that was because they were being very quiet and holding on to each other. Another girl grabbed my arm while looking back into the dark hallway we just strolled. I didn't know her at all, but I think she was reaching thresholds that made her far more afraid than entertained. I kindly grabbed her hand and wrapped my arm and said, I'm Kate. Bailey. Are you doing okay? I swear, I heard something behind us. Well, you know the saying. Which one? She let go of my arm, taking a deep breath. You don't need to run the fastest, just be faster than the slowest person. Also, never be last in line. She and I smiled and immediately picked up the pace and walked into the middle of the group. At the end of a few of the hallways, it opened up into what looked like holding cells. The bars were painted a wine red, a reminiscent color of the 70s to 80s interior design, no doubt. There was one door that looked very different from all the others. A large red metal door that slid to the left like a barn door. It was a door to the exterior. An enclosed cement area with an open sky. Glass was all over this place, too. There was another red metal sliding door on the other side of the courtyard. A few in our group got excited and jogged over there to go look. I started to get a sinking feeling and stopped in the cement courtyard. Bailey stopped with me and gave me a look. The thought popped into my head so involuntarily that for the first time I felt unease. And that thought was, this place is a labyrinth by design. What if we needed to get out quickly? What if the only door was the one we just came through and it gets blocked off by a fire? Or cops are called and we get busted? I didn't want to enter the hall across the courtyard. It hit me really hard that I did not want to do it. Hooper picked up on my hesitations. Hey, you okay? He asked me. I shook my head. I don't know if I want to be here. I can go back and wait by the cars. I'd like to do the same. Bailey chimed in and stepped forward in the conversation. Hooper looked to both of us and said, no, That's fine. I'll walk you back. He then turned toward the door, having the last person file in. He ran over there, and I saw him lean his hand onto the doorframe as he poked his head around the corner. I could tell he was talking into the hallway, likely telling Todd that we were going to be going back. He walked over to Bailey and I. Okay, let's go. He stuffed his hands into his black jacket pockets. I felt relief. I did not want to go in any further, and I preferred not to go back alone at all. We entered the hallway that led out to the courtyard again, and I took a confident right turn. Bailey and Hubert didn't question and also followed my lead. I swear we all remember turning right as the correct thing to do. So I thought. 
but as we rounded a few more corners, I saw the hall of jail cells again with the wine-red metal bars, but something about the layout didn't feel right. I stopped walking, and Bailey passed me, continuing. Hooper reached me and stopped. Hold up, Bailey. He then turned to address me. What's wrong? Does this feel right? Did we come through this way? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we did. I don't remember the layout looking like this at all. Well, we came in from the other direction, so I'm sure it just looks different from this angle. It's dark. Okay, yeah, sure, I, I buy that. I shook my head and began walking forward again. Bailey was a little more wary after that, and she took to holding my arm again. The whole situation felt eerie. I could only hear the footsteps from the three of us echo down the hall. We didn't say much to each other. Frankly, a heavy air set down upon us, and I think all three of us sensed it. It wasn't until we reached a hall that led down a staircase that I immediately protested. Guys, we were never this far into the building. I don't think I can go down those stairs. Bailey agreed, and so did Hooper. But as we turned our back to retrace our steps, the sound of a metal clang rose up from far down the stairwell depths. Hooper, Bailey, and I immediately began to run. We rounded the second hallway corner and ducked into an open jail cell to catch our breath. What caused that? I heard Bailey say with a loss in her breath. Don't know, Hooper said. The three of us stood there a moment unspeaking. We all had deduced a rational thought about that sound. In an abandoned place where the building has settled for over two decades of time, a sudden burst of sound or impact is not lightly discarded. Something or someone had to have created it, and we ran like frightened rabbits. I was beginning to feel myself sweat. Do we even know where we are at this point? Hooper asked with a slight hopelessness to Bailey and I. But then, bless Bailey, she spoke up. Guys, I don't think it's that complicated. We just need to find a window or that courtyard again to see outside. How is that helpful exactly? Hooper asked. This place is on Mount Timpanogos. The mountain sits east. The front door is north-facing. If we can find a way to look outside, then we can orient ourselves by where the mountainside is and how far over we are from that school and try to not get ourselves further in. It's a pretty big mountain after all. She was right. Hooper and I agreed. We stepped out of the jail cell into the hallway. High up at the end of the hall was a high-mounted window. We tried our best from the ground to see, but it was just too dark to really make it out. Couldn't tell if it was a mountain face or pure sky. We needed to find a window set closer to the ground and not a glorified skylight. But then we heard another clang. The three of us shrunk back into the jail cell. This time, the clang didn't sound like a metal bar getting smacked. This time, it, it, it sounded like... Guys, was that one of the red doors sliding shut? Bailey asked out loud to no one. I felt a sickness hit me. Yes, I thought. That sounded exactly 
like the sliding doors we saw earlier. I grabbed Hooper's arm. He didn't argue. In fact, I felt him hug my arm tighter to his side. He was scared too. The three of us sat there quiet in the jail cell, listening to the silence. We even turned off our phone lights. Then we heard an unusual patter. The sound of feet on cement, not shoes. There wasn't a soft clack that a heel would have, but rather the sound of skin connecting and a slight sticking before the next step was taken. What on earth would make a sound like that, and why are they here? It couldn't be the other group scaring us, right? Bailey whispered to Hooper. Totally possible, but I'd rather be sure. His mouth was so close to my ear when whispering, I could feel the heat of his breath. The steps in the dark were getting closer, and a light note would ring out as the bars were slapped. Whoever it was was tapping the jail bars like it was a picket fence. There aren't a lot of cells in this hallway, by the way. We were in jail number five out of five before the hall went into another section of chambered jails. And to move from here would be a mistake at this point to do so. We stayed huddled into the corner of that dirty and molding jail cell, just listening and holding on to each other. Then I heard it. The sound of someone slapping the bars to our cell. It stopped for a moment. I was trying my best to avoid breathing altogether. Then it started again and continued into the next chain hallway of jail cells. The sliding metal red door slid shut at the end of the hallway. I clicked the side of my phone to bring up my locked screen and turn the light very low. I only wanted us to be able to use a haze of light as we backtracked away from that thing making sounds. We curved ourselves through a few more winding halls, and a miracle happened. We saw the cement courtyard. We ran out and saw the outline of the sky and the mountain ridge to the east. We guessed which door to take back inside, and I felt a strange sensation of comfort when I saw, here you become a number. We made our way out and slipped through the hole in the chain link fence. I'd never been so happy to be on a regular public street. As we walked back up the steep sidewalk to the place where everyone had parked their cars, I was surprised to see that Natalie and Maya were sitting there waiting. Everyone else had apparently already gotten bored from their spelunking. Jeez, there you guys are. Natalie said with a slight passive-aggressive tone. I didn't care. Bailey, Hooper, and I filed into the back seat. The three of us didn't want to talk about what happened. Natalie was acting particularly sour. What took you forever? She said, pulling up her phone. After a beat of silence... Bailey spoke up. We got lost. Hooper and I gave each other a glance, then back to the rest of the company in the car. Well, it wasn't long after you three split off, we decided we were pretty much done too. Turns out a lot of the prison just started feeling like more of the same. Yeah, no kidding, I thought. 
Apparently, for Natalie and Maya, as they stayed in the bigger group, they all had no problem getting back to the cars. As it turns out, Natalie took a shine to Todd, so she offered to call him when we came out, her subtle way of getting his number. Like I said, my roommates did good things, but always lined with something selfish. Later, on campus, I was telling another friend of mine about my experience of getting lost and the sound that we heard walking through the dark. He said to me, You do know what that probably was. His face got stern and turned to face me outright. I shook my head and shrugged. That was probably a homeless person, someone who had been there for a while and knew how to walk about in the dark there. He missed you while walking by, but he kept shutting the doors behind him so he could hear you trying to escape. I sat there staring at him, feeling utterly confused in thought. Blood drained from my face. So when looking back, it seemed reasonable. But after all, my amateur group had very little trouble entering the place. Who's to say that someone who wanted to take up longer-term shelter wasn't hiding? What kind of sport or entertainment is it for an idiot college kid like us to wander into his domain? I really didn't want to think too heavily on it. Even after an event like that, Hooper, Bailey, and I really didn't get together. I do sometimes wonder if I looked them up and see how they're doing, but I don't think I'll look for them soon. Cannot think of reconnecting on Facebook by saying, hey, Remember that time we got lost in a cement hellscape and made it out okay? Icebreaker to be sure, but I don't think it would be a welcome one. Hi there, constant listener. Our Copper Shot community is growing, and I love it. Don't hesitate to tell me hi by going over to our Facebook page and sending me a message. If you like our podcast, I completely encourage you to leave a review. Your words and actions help this community to grow and help other listeners like yourself discover the Copper Shock podcast. The next episode is an experience my parents told me about recently. We were staying at the Del Coronado in San Diego in 1997. The Del Coronado is one of the oldest hotels in all of California, built in 1888, and it's still active today. It has a host of permanent resident ghosts, but our family didn't understand at the time was that our encounter crossed paths with one of the most famous residents there. Keep an eye posted for the next episode of Copper Shock. <laughs>